This is The Visible Hand, a podcast about organizations, economics, and management. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal, and I am an associate professor at the Department of Management, London School of Economics. My guest today is Rafaela Sadun, a professor of business administration at Harvard Business School. Today, we are going to talk about two of her papers, both written with Stephen Michael Imping and Andrea Pratt. The first one is measuring collaboration in modern organizations. And the second, very related, is communication within firms, evidence from CEO turnovers. Rafaela, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jordi. It's great to chat with you. Rafaela, I want to start with the first paper, the paper that was published in the AER Papers and Proceedings. It's a short article. Can you outline the argument that you make there? Yeah, absolutely. So this being an ARPMP, as you know, it's a very descriptive paper of, you know, an idea more than a result or, you know, what would be like a fully fledged uh, academic paper as we know it. The main idea that we wanted to present is the fact that today, with the availability of email and meetings metadata, researchers like us, who are really interested in understanding what happens inside organizations, can have a lot of fun and understand a lot about these hidden aspects of organizations, specifically communication and interactions that are typically unobservable to us. And so the main idea, the objective of this paper was to say, look, we have thought a lot about issues of communications inside organization. We've thought a lot about them from a theoretical perspective. There are some magnificent contributions from Simon, from Arrow, you know, many other people after them. However, there is a big gap between what the theory has uh, explored and what empirical papers have done. And this big gap is due to a data limitation. Today, with the fact that we do a lot of our job, knowledge workers do a lot of their job virtually through emails and that meetings can be recorded on our calendars, if we find a good way to access this data and organize this data in a way that is meaningful to academic researchers, we can probably take a lot of these original ideas to the data and start understanding whether the predictions still hold or whether there are more things that perhaps we even had thought about that could be discovered now. You are obviously correct that communication is very important inside organizations. There has been, therefore, a lot of theoretical work on this and the empirics have lagged behind. This is natural because obviously theorists find it very easy to write down in a piece of paper a variable called communication or message or (laughs) something related. You bloody theorist. (laughs) Well, I am only an ex-theorist, so I I don't take any blame for this, although I myself have some papers on this, but it is very hard for empirical organizational economists uh, to measure in practice what communication entails in terms of what the channels are, what are the messages that are being sent, and so on. So therefore, to test these theories that have been accumulated over many decades, you talk about this new access to metadata in terms of electronic communication. Can you explain what metadata is and what would be the ideal data set on communication that in the best case scenario you would like to have? Yeah, sure. 
So metadata is basically the log of communications that happen within uh, organizations, sometimes also outside organizations. What does it mean? That when you are an employee of a firm and you send an email, there would be a digital tracing of the fact that at our X on day Y, you have sent an email or you have received an email. Similarly, for your electronic calendars, what metadata does is that captures the notion that there has been something has been put on your calendar and that there was a block of time that was reserved for you know, a certain number of hours. So what's the clear, let me first talk about what this data does not measure. And let me also tell you about why I think it's still useful. So what this type of information does not measure is the content or the language that that is used in the emails. Collecting or using that information would present a lot of problems, as you can imagine. It gives you, it's essentially a digital trace of activity that has involved some sort of email communication. So we don't know the content. In terms of the meetings, perhaps the limitations are even bigger in the sense that we don't know why you were doing the meeting. We might have a sense of who was at the meeting with you, but in certain circumstances, we don't even know. Maybe that meeting was in your agenda, but you actually didn't attend, right? So there are all sorts of limitations which make this data, I don't think, ideal to study the content or the language of meetings. Now, why is it still exciting, I think, to use this data? Because if you like, they give you, especially at an aggregate sense, so if you take, you know, you aggregate these noisy signals, but for entire organizations, they can give you some proxies for the intensity of communication, how many emails, how many meetings happen within a day or within a firm. They can give you a sense of the direction of communication, who spoke with whom. And so, you know, potentially you can even get a sense of the network uh, aspects of, uh, of communication. And I think very importantly, this is a noisy signal, yes, but it's uh, measured in exactly the same way across all the employees. And so you don't have to rely on the completion of surveys, which are super informative and allow you to go deep in the content or the structure of organization, but unfortunately have several shortcomings in terms of idiosyncrasies in how they are completed. And I would say that this this comparability is important because it gives you comparability cross-sectionally. The same people can basically have the same data, but also longitudinally. And so, you know, if you think about it, it's very hard to get at these dynamics of communication just using surveys because it would be an enormous burden on people to keep keeping track of of what they do. Instead, this metadata gives you this sort of continuous information on, uh, on how people communicate and how much they communicate. And so for all those reasons, I think that There are certainly many things you cannot do, but at the same time, that opens up the opportunity to sort of get the pulse of communication within firms in a way that is unfeasible with other instruments. You are correct that this is great data to have for researchers, but you also mentioned that nowadays, because we are studying knowledge workers, this means that they typically communicate with each other via emails, or often at least they go to meetings, Therefore, we are capturing a big part of the communication that they engage in. A flip side of the fact that we are studying knowledge workers, that is that technology has become more complex, that information has become more complex, is that this data, any data, is going to be more imperfect because the amount and the complexity of the information 
that is communicated or not it also increases as time passes and therefore in some sense you can think of this as thank god that technology has saved us and we can finally measure communication or you can think of this as well the world has becoming so complex that there is some type of race between the increasing complexity and our ability to measure it oh yeah totally i i, I totally agree i mean And I think that this is really, I mean, we've seen it. We've seen it recently with the pandemic, right? Where the beginning of the pandemic, I think many organizations were still relying on emails as a way to communicate. And so, you know, great, you know, let's, I, I actually did write a paper where we were following the intensity of emails and meetings throughout the you know, pandemic for cities that had lockdowns or not. So, you know, on one level, you say, okay, fantastic. But then what happened is, people started using additional means of communication when they were working from home. And so we've, we've seen a massive transition from emails to communication platforms like Slack or Teams. And so, you know, from a research perspective, that's uh, as exactly what you were saying, is that these modes of communication keep changing and they keep evolving. I think in part it's because communication is really so central. And because our work is becoming more complex, it's uh, actually, you know, it becomes harder to codify the complexity of what we do in uh, written messages. And so we are desperately trying to get at those interactions and those, you know, ways of combining and exchanging information and the technology is evolving to i think in, as a response of our needs which are really you know being able to rely more on teamwork or do more complex stuff and uh, um, and maybe tackle more complex problems too so i was i was thinking when you were mentioning we have now access to this new data about what would be the ideal data that I or other people would like to have. And I'm going to give you my proposal and see whether there is something that you think is redundant or that you will add there. The first type of data will be about the channels that the workers or the departments or the divisions have to communicate with each other. Like in the theoretical models, this is something that they specify, right? You can send a message or you can send a signal or like the, the modes of communication are a variable there. And we also have variables uh, empirically in that not everything can be communicated. I, I will also include a code. So whether our language is narrower or wider or more precise, it's also part of the technology that we have created to communicate with each other. So that will be number one. The second, and this is what you have, or what you were referring to earlier, is the existence of actual communication between workers or between departments using the channels that they have at their disposal. So you were referring earlier to email communication or meetings. Well, these are two channels, but you also know how, what is the intensity in which they are used, whether more emails are being sent or not. The third one, and I presume that you are not going to have this in your data, is going to be the nature of communication, what is actually being said. I mean, conceivably, one could have the messages as well and have some way of deciphering or interpreting or what are the actual messages that are being sent to each other. Again, theorists, they write predictions on how the different agents will use these messages. Uh, to communicate more or less information or information that is distorted or exaggerated and so on. So that's on the communication side. I would like to have information on employee or team productivity. 
because at the end of the day, you were talking earlier about communication, but implicitly, and I know that this is what you will tell us later, you are having communication on the left-hand side as a dependent variable. But of course, communication is an input. We want to study ultimately the outputs. So this is, at some point, we will want to know how the use of modeless communication or this channel or the other channel translates into higher or lower performance. And the fifth thing is, of course, other characteristics or features of the organization that if I was a theorist, I will have as parameters that I can draw comparative statics on. Is there anything that I'm missing there in my ideal world? <laughs> well, that you just described the impossible paper, Jordi. <laughs> yes. No, so no, but this is the way that many people start by defining the ideal experiment or the ideal data set and then seeing how close we can get to them. If you have that data, what will you do with it? You know, I think the question of the ideal data set depends exactly on what you're interested in. It's impossible to find a universal data set that is great for all questions. As you know, when you work, when you do empirical work, you really need, that's what you just said, right? You define the research question and then you define, you know, the data that gets you as close as possible to measuring what you're interested in. And then if you're interested in a causal relationship in sort of being able to say, okay, I, I think this is the phenomenon that I have in mind. This is to the best of my, um, of my capability as an empirical research, I'm convinced that this is what's happening, right? So personally, I got to this data because as you know, I'm very interested in managers. And I'm very interested in understanding how managers affect their organization. I'm very interested in understanding what's the ultimate outcome of better or worse managers. And when I was working with Andrea Oriana and Steven Hansen on a different project, which was about CEOs and how CEOs spend their time, we realized that CEOs spend an inordinate amount of time communicating with others. It's something like 70% of their time goes into meetings or emails or, or phone calls. And so if, if, you, if you think about it from, with variation, right, with variation in how much they work, how much they communicate, who do they communicate with. So once you have the realization that the job of the manager is communication, then you, you sort of start thinking, what's the best way to measure communication at scale? How do I go from this very labor intensive technology, which is what we were using in the paper with Oriana, uh, Steven and Andrea, which is called CO Behavior and Perf Performance. There, you know, we went, we classified the time of the CEOs in 15 minutes chunk. We had 40 people working on this project for three months, you know, and we were able to get at a thousand CEOs. And so obviously it's very hard to scale that type of technology. So for me, I approach this data from the perspective of, I'm very interested in understanding the role of managers. I would love to understand how a broader sample of people spend their time and how their time affects the organization. If I can get my hands on data that sort of helps me to measure what CEOs do on how CEOs affect the organization, I think I'm, I mean, I'm going to be very interested in that. So from my perspective, the ideal data was something where I could get a sense of hierarchical differences in communication. I could get a sense of uh, variation in communication across managers because that was um, important to me. And as you were saying, I could also have some inputs in terms of communication and some outputs, which are 
really difficult to, to define for many knowledge workers. The ideal data set would look something like, you know, I can identify a manager, I can identify a style of communication for each manager, I can observe how this person moves around the same organization or across organizations. I define different styles of communication and I'm able to understand how these different styles of communication affect other people and therefore output. So this is you know, my, my personal ideal study. If I could get a sense of differences in language, you know what you were saying, different managers have different codes or they emphasize different aspects of the firm or the strategy or you know, people management, Awesome, right? We are basically building this vector of managerial characteristics uh, that, you know, it's clearly not available or has not been available so far. So if I have to dream of a data set, given my interest, this would be the ideal data set. It's clear that this is impossible to realize in reality. And so what's the closest you can get to? And uh, maybe now we can transition to the paper you were alluding to, which is something that it's an experimental project, if you like. And the paper is, is very new. We are going to start presenting it next you know, in a couple of weeks time. But essentially, we, we took this idea of uh, ex- trying to measure how uh, CEOs affect communication by looking at what happens in firms when the CEO changes. And so getting at, you know, using the CEO some almost like a shock to the communication intensity and the communication patterns within organizations. So if you want, I can tell you a little bit more about that. Can you, can you outline the data set that you have for this specific project? How many firms, what you can measure about them and all this so that we can focus our minds? Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, the primary objective was we started with this idea. Okay, let's, uh, one way to think about the role of managers is to see what happens in an organization when a manager, you know, when you have a, a managerial turnover, a change of a CEO and the data, you know, we thought a little bit about, okay, how do we get from, uh, from the idea of measuring the effect of CEOs on communication on the data? It's not that easy. <laughs> so what we did was we first, you know, we had a contact with a large email provider. We knew what year, for what years they had information on internal communication within firms. And we knew it was like a span of like two, three years where there was, we knew that that there was the potential of accessing information on firm level variables of communication for a large enough sample of firms. Obviously, for confidentiality reasons, we don't even know what firms they have in their sample. So it's a completely different way of thinking about data creation. And so what we did is, okay, let's identify the set of companies, public companies, that within this time period have experienced a CO change. So we've identified a set of companies that are, if you like, treated by this CO shock. And then we asked the email provider to match it with their records. And they gave us back information on the intensity and in some cases, the modality. So whether communication was vertical or horizontal for several months before and after a CEO change for about 100 companies. You say, you know, 100 companies is not a huge sample, right? I mean, at least based on the standards of uh, empirical work, ideally you want to work with a much bigger sample, but you would be surprised. This is the first time that this type of information is actually available for more than two organizations. So we've actually moved the needle. A lot of this research on emails is done on single organizations. I know of some papers that have used 
uh, a couple, we've really, you know, made a major step forward in going from two to a hundred. Obviously, it's still not where we would like to be, but it's a major step forward relative to what's available. And so for these companies, we can see how communication changes over time. And, you know, both in terms of the intensity, the meetings and, you know, the communication between managers and employees and employees between themselves or managers within themselves. So that's the closest approximation that we could get for the question that we were interested in. There's, of course, a trade-off between width and depth. Completely. You have auto firms. It's not just that your email provider was not able or willing to give you the same type of detailed information that other researchers might have on single firm studies. It's just that even if they were willing to, many of the other characteristics would not be comparable across firms. And, and therefore, it wouldn't be possible to have a, a homogeneous variable that captures broadly the same thing across firms. You have to be willing to make that compromise. It's absolutely, as you say, it's a trade-off. I think that we've done a lot of, I mean, I've been working a lot on these issues of measuring this dark matter, which is, you know, the organizational routines, the, you know, the organizational structure of firms. I think we've made a lot of progress over the past 10 years in doing so, but we were able to do it because we started small and then you build on the first lessons and then you keep going. And, you know, eventually from your lessons, you learn also how to scale measurement in a way, in a way that is satisfactory. So for me right now, I think the question is, I am willing to make that trade-off because I want to start, I mean, I realizing all the limitations that this line of research entails, I think it's still worthwhile exploring and understanding, you know, how far can this approach get you and, you know, what are you missing? And perhaps, you know, new ideas or new other people will find better ways of measuring what we currently cannot measure. Okay, so let me summarize. We have 100 companies and all the companies have experienced a change in CEO at some point. And around that change in CEO event, you have information on the intensity of communication across several dimensions. The first one is email versus meetings. Okay, these are the two modes of communication, there's of channels. But you also mentioned something related to hierarchical, for which I presume you mean between the top managers or between managers and their subordinates or between the subordinates. Correct. This is the main way in which you are not cut the data, but the data is provided, let's say. (laughs) Yes. I mean, that's how, you know, knowing the, the limitations we're going to face and the confidentiality concerns, this was the closest we could get to usable data for our purposes. Yeah. And you have in your study a motivation of the type of patterns that you should expect to see in terms of this communication across channels, total, across hierarchies. And this motivation is on the basis of an existing model of communication in organizations. Can you outline what this model says and what it predicts and how you translate these predictions into your data? Let me tell you one uh, anecdote before we go into the model, and then I'm going to tell you about how we use the model. So in this paper, what we see, and in a sense, you know, surprisingly, it's really what we were expecting to see. When I was discussing with the email provider the, this research question, we were talking about how a change in a manager affects the, um, the other employees. 
And, you know, so we were talking about that because this uh, specific email provider was going through a lot of reorganizations. And, you know, the anecdote or the story that they were telling us was every time we have a managerial change, this introduces a huge amount of uncertainty. And what we notice is that people stop, stop collaborating, stop talking, or they stop meeting, because when a new manager arrives, you are basically trying to, you know, you don't know what's happening. You don't know who's going to stay, who's going to go. This seems to have a freezing effect on how people communicate. And then after a while, things sort of go through. And, you know, if you think about what they were saying, actually, it's something that the uh, Alonso et al. 2008, it's a canonical paper communication. We thought we can include this type of dynamic in their model of intrafirm communication. What we, you know, without summarizing and, you know, butch- butchering the model, especially, you know, talking with the theories, what we hypothesize is that when you have sort of a misalignment, a change in the alignment between the managers and the employees, this would have an effect on the quantity and the intensity of information that is exchanged between these two parties. And so what we were thinking is, look, a change in the CEO, we we can think of it as, if you like, a shock to this alignment between managers and employees. And so, you know, through the paper, what we saw is that effectively, once you have, you know, the very first months after a CEO change, what you see is that this shock is followed by a significant reduction in communication. Meetings uh, decline, you know, significantly by a large amount. And the same is true for, uh, for emails. And, you know, in light of the model, our interpretation was, there is something that is changing in this relationship between uh, uh, the top of the organization and employees. And that's what we're, why we're seeing this uh, happening uh, in communication. That's our interpretation, by the way. I mean, we use the model as a possible interpretation of what, what's happening in the data. So it is an empirical finding that following the arrival of a new CEO, the intensive communication decreases, both in terms of emails and also in terms of meetings. Yeah. There are two motivations or two explanations that you have proposed for this. The second one is the one that is based on the theoretical model of Alonso, Desain, and Matusek, which is that the new CEO decreases the degree of alignment between himself and the other members of the organization, and that reduces communication. The first motivation was coming directly from your email provider. And essentially, the motivation was that the arrival of the new CEO has a freezing effect, and the workers just wait to see what is going on, and they don't communicate. Presumably, they don't work very hard. They don't do much because they are lacking the new direction that the CEO is supposed to provide. And the CEO is new and is not providing that direction just yet. I think that, you know, what they told us is not that people don't work as much, is that they don't communicate as much, which I thought was really interesting. And in fact, in the data, I don't, I mean, I don't know. Look, it may be an effort story too. We don't measure how many hours people spend in the office. But what was interesting was the idea of... uh, what I was told, at least, was the idea of you don't know who is a friend, you don't know who is a foe, you don't know who's going to be your team member tomorrow. And that sort of blocks the intensity of, uh, of interactions and communication that you have. You might still work you know, on, on your own thing, 
you don't know whether strategically you should be talking with A if A is going to leave tomorrow. Let's put it this way, right? What about the following explanation, which in some sense will be the most harmless explanation? The communication in a firm is top-down instead of bottom-up. In Alonso, Tessen and Matushek, it is the managers at the bottom who communicate upwards, but you can think of this the other way around. The CEO sets the direction, the strategy, or the CEO says who's going to be where or something like that. And then this information just trickles down throughout the organization. So then there is a CEO turnover and the new CEO obviously needs some time to be able to take decisions because the CEO is new to the position, needs to find out how to log in into the, his computer or her computer, needs to do a tour around the plant and check out what, what is going on. And decisions are frozen from the top for a while. And then once the new CEO has acquired the knowledge that allows them to set up the new direction, there is obviously new directives being communicated and then communication restarts. And perhaps even restarts at a higher level than earlier because there is a backlog of decisions that should have been taken in the past. You know, this is from somebody who might not have read a lot of economic theory, the most natural explanation in which there is no strategy or, or there is no strategic agents or internal politics or it will be a type of explanation that Ratner could give, you know, of like nodes of communication, robots. Yeah. That, that don't think for themselves. So I think this is actually really interesting. And I agree with you that this would be, you know, another way to think about, um, about what we find. And in fact, you know, a second set of results that I have not mentioned yet, but I think are actually in line with, with your interpretation, is that after a few months of uh, communication slump, we actually see that there is a massive increase in communication more or less six months after the CEO takes control. And so, as you say, this could be an interpretation that might be, one is interpretation of, okay, uncertainty has solved and now people know where the direction of the company is. And so they start talking again. The second one, or maybe the two are happening at the same time, is that finally the CEO has an understanding of where the, the organization should go and so you need, you, you've set the priorities, now you have to communicate them throughout the organization. And so you start you know, uh, holding uh, town hall meetings, you start talking to people, people start sort of updating their own strategies in light of what you have said. So one thing that I wanted to mention, because I think it's actually interesting in light of your interpretation, is that the increase in communication that happens after a little while is driven by what we call vertical communication, which is communication happening between managers and employees. And I think that you know, if you think about it as uh, this is a cascading down of information from the top to the bottom, it would be consistent with that, that you know, there are new priorities that are being communicated and are being internalized throughout the organization. In some of the theories of communication in organizations, you actually, in most theories that I can think of now, they specify who sends the message to whom, right? right? So communication is not two-way, but instead it is obviously directed, which that's the way that we, we think of, 
of messages. No? I guess that one limitation of your data is that you see the overall amount of emails, but not who sent the emails to whom or who started an email chain, who decided to set up a, a meeting or... Yeah, this is, you know, we started asking for that type of information where, you know, you would basically get a much richer perspective on, uh, on communication if you could know the starting node or if you can have, even, you know, getting a better sense of the networks of communications in a more uh, fine-brained way. But this is where you hit the trade-off of confidentiality. There are two problems, actually. One is confidentiality, so anything that is based on cells of you know, less than X individuals, where X is actually a large, you know, large enough number, they would not give to us. And I think also for valuable reasons. Things, you, you basically have to rely on this aggregation. The second problem is space. So this information, even the one, you think about 100 firms, you know, doesn't seem to be a lot. But the, I think that there are you know, several millions of emails and meetings that are actually underneath these 100, 100 firms. And the space constraints of analyzing and storing the information that you would need to get at these fine-grained measures of who communicated with whom, the network, and so forth, are actually make it unfeasible to pursue some of these research questions on more than on a number of organizations rather than within. So it's all sorts of, uh, you know, and this is something that I would have not anticipated if you had asked me before starting this project, whether, you know, space and uh, uh, storing would become a constraint. Well, it actually is because we generate million and million of data every day through this, uh, through, through what we do. And not all of it can be stored or analyzed effectively. I know that you're very interested in CEOs. As you were mentioning, this was like the initial, the starting point of your interest or not an incidental feature of your interest in communication. But if I wanted to get to that question of how the turnover of the CEO, or let me just rephrase, the turnover of the boss changes communication patterns. Of course, it will be very useful to be able to have a data set that was a bit more micro, that doesn't have the type of storage problems that you were describing. It will also be very useful to have a data set in which there was a measure of performance at the micro organization level. Yeah. So if I had a data set from a single firm, but that has a lot of different teams or stores, perhaps they are even geographically apart somewhat, in which maybe the teams consist of a single boss and then two subordinates. Maybe if you want to put it this way, say a partner in a law firm and two associates and a paralegal. It would seem to me that this data will have many of the advantages and more of the one that you are describing while complementing it with performance data so you can put something on the left-hand side. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. In fact, you know, I think what you're referring to is this idea of doing insider econometrics using emails or metadata within a single organization, as long as this organization has multiple units and as long as you have enough turnover of managers within the company. 
And, you know, I'm thinking of the work of Ed Lazier, Cathy Shaw, and Chris Stanton on the value of bosses. I'm thinking about uh, Mitch Hoffman, Hoffman and Steve Tadelis, who are using effectively this approach of uh, rotating managers within organizations. To the extent that the company has uh, logs that can be paired with organograms, with organizations, organizational information on who is a person, where a person is in a certain point in time, and where this person is going, you could do a lot of really interesting work within, even within a single firm that is large enough. And in fact, you know, that's honestly, I mean, this is also where we, you know, we, we explore this opportunity with the email provider. It's, it's really interesting, however, that I think it's doable and um, my, my sense is that they might be doing it already. Sometimes it's a matter of opportunity whether the firm is ready to give you access to all this data to pursue a research question. As you can imagine, and this goes back to the confidentiality problem I was mentioning at the beginning, as soon as you start getting into the world of emails and meetings, some organizations are very uncomfortable with giving access to that information at a more disaggregated level because it might expose people. Uh, or it might create suspicions of uh, a big brother watching you. So I think that these are all sets of considerations that I'm sure would be possible to overcome in some organizations. It's just so happened that in our case, we were not able to, to overcome them at that point in time. I was mentioned in this, you can see that I am returning to the obsession with having a left-hand side that at some point is productivity. Because... While you were describing earlier that, oh, it seems that CEOs in the, my previous work, what they do is communicate a lot. They spend most of the time communicating. I, I, I think that you did not mention it, but if I remember well, those who communicate more are also actually better for the share price or the profits of the firm. This in some sense contrasts with the lay person view of what a meeting is. So I was watching earlier a lot of Dilbert cartoons and it doesn't seem from these cartoons as if meetings are necessarily very productive activities. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and just generally, when I think about organizations that I have belonged to, it is not my anecdotal impression that those of us who go to more meetings are the most productive workers. And longitudinal mm -hmm. either, the periods in which I have gone to more meetings are not the periods in which looking back, I can reflect and say that that increasing communication massively led to an increase in personal productivity. Oh, maybe negative. Correct. What I mean to say by this is that uh, something that, theory models sometimes don't do and that it's not as clear in your empiric analysis either is the notion that communication has a cost that is workers managers are communicating when they are not doing their jobs maybe this is different for the ceos okay perhaps for single individuals or very top executives in a firm communicating is their jobs. But for most of us, it's not. And for the individuals that created the metadata that you have in your empirical analysis, the writing emails and going to meetings 
you know, you, you could interpret this as something that is detracting from the actual doing of their jobs, of the, of a, the, the productive endeavors. So let me circle back to a point that you referred to in our earlier work on the time use of CEOs. And then I'll come to this issue of what is the benefit of a meeting, because I think it's important. In the paper about CEOs, we actually say that uh, the value of different managerial styles, I mean, we, we thought about it in terms of, you know, some CEOs are, uh, you know, spend most of their time coordinating the work of other people, and that happens through meetings. And other CEOs are actually quite hands-on. You can see that in the data. These were manufacturing firms. They go to the shop floor. They like to be involved in the operational side of companies. And what we were saying is that we shouldn't think about these characteristics as being vertically differentiated. We should think of these characteristics as being horizontally differentiated. In some organizations, it makes a lot of sense for the manager to be involved in the day by day. In other organizations, especially the larger one, the more complex one, a meeting can actually have a much greater impact on the firm rather than the, the manager going to the shop floor. Because at that point, you know, you think about that work of the shop floor could have been delegated by somebody to somebody else and have done much more effectively. The value of a CEO, if you think about knowledge hierarchies, you know, the people who are at the top are the people who can do the more sophisticated and the more complex work. And, you know, sometimes managers resist this notion of being the expert. They want to be the doers. Okay, so actually, I think that the notion we should have is that is one where the value of uh, of a manager spending time in a meeting coordinating versus doing is very heterogeneous, in part because firms have different needs, in parts because managers have different capabilities. That's that's uh, uh, that's the point point one. And so if you if you think about meetings in that way, I think I do agree with you. The productivity of a meeting will be heterogeneous. Given that we all face a time constraint, we have 24 hours, you really want to be, think about caref carefully about that opportunity cost. In the, this is more in the management literature than in the econ literature, but one, one aspect, one distinction that is often made is that in, uh, in organizations where you have more complexity, more skills, more knowledge uh, workers, the value of this face, you know, these interactions, these uh, meetings, can actually be uh, quite large because in those type of organizations, you need to coordinate. First of all, you need to coordinate the ego of the, very part of the, of the participants. That's like a, a, you know, one first aspect. But then you have to coordinate complex information and it's basically teamwork. Teamwork doesn't happen uh, magically. As you know, when you go to a faculty meeting, you have experts in uh, all the domains. It's not necessarily clear that by just by virtue of putting these experts in a room together, they're going to come to a better solution. You need some device, you need something to make sure that that teamwork happens and it happens effectively. And so the, the way I think about meetings is meetings and interactions are able to create that alignment of, and coordination that it would be otherwise very difficult to achieve and probably very hard to achieve, for example, just using incentives. It's something else that requires interactions. And so my view is, 
you know, there are so we hate meetings, but meetings still remain the main way in which complex organizations function. Probably what happens is that we are not as disciplined enough in thinking about the value of meetings once we go to, you know, down below the hierarchy or for problems that frankly could be coordinated uh, in isolation, where we don't really need to get together in a room to talk about things to get to arrive to a solution. Rafaela, thank you for coming to the program. Thank you so much, Jordi. Pleasure. My name is Jordi Danesi-Bildal, and this is the Visible Hand podcast. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to some of the papers that we discussed. The introductory music was selected by Aitana Blanesiso, and the episode was produced by Anderson Tan. <laughs>